Our patients use their brains every moment of their lives, and so do we. How well do you know your brain? You may be distressed at the answer. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt of Foothill Psychiatry in Boise, Idaho, your host. And with me today is Dr. Sandra Amit. Dr. Amit is the former editor-in-chief of Nature Neuroscience, one of the leading journals in the field of brain research. Before becoming the editor, she trained at the University of Rochester and at Yale. She recently co-authored, along with Dr. Sam Wang, Welcome to Your Brain. Thanks for coming to ReachMD, Dr. Amit. Glad to be here. Let me begin by thanking you for this book. I really hate to admit it, but I learned a lot. I'm curious how you decided to write it. Like many neuroscientists, I've had a lot of people over the years asking me questions about how their brains work. The idea of doing a popular book really crystallized for me when I was living in New York and took the subway in to work with a neighbor, and we got to talking about the brain. And the first thing he asked me, and this is common, was, do we really only use 10% of our brains? Uh And I said, no, that's a myth. And he looks at me and he says, well, then where do we keep our psychic powers? (laughs) So um, that sort of moment crystallized my idea that more real scientific information needed to be getting out to the public. I would say so. Well, you began your book with the quiz. It certainly got my attention. Can we take it together? Mm Mm-hmm. What's the first question? When are your last brain cells born? Before birth, at age 6, between the ages of 18 and 23, or in old age? Well, I think I know the right answer here. I actually just did a show on neurogenesis, but I would guess that many people believe that you have what you're born with and you never get any more. That's certainly what I was taught when we were in graduate school. This is a fairly recent discovery in neuroscience, but it turns out that there are at least two areas of the brain where neurons continue to be born throughout life. They slow down as you get older. So As you age, you get fewer new neurons, but both the hippocampus and the olfactory bulbs produce new neurons throughout life. Okay, I'm ready for question number two. Okay. Men and women have inborn differences in spatial reasoning, strategies for navigation, ability to leave the toilet seat down, both A and B, or both B and C. Well, this one, for me, I thought I had... Clearly, men and women, at least in in my world, have very different navigational strategies. Is that the only correct answer? That's one correct answer. Women and, in fact, female rats use landmark-based navigation strategies, while men and male rats tend to use global directions, north, south, east, west, distances. Even the rats do that? Yeah, even rats do that. I thought it was just my husband. (laughs) No, it's not just your husband. If you put uh, rats in a maze, the female rats will have their navigation screwed up if you take away the local cues and the male rats will get screwed up if you pick the maze up and rotate it within the room. But that's not the only thing. Ah, Okay. The other male-female difference that's pretty strong is in spatial reasoning, particularly in the mental object rotation. So what is that? So the test for it basically involves looking at a picture of an object that looks like it's made of Legos with little arms sticking out in different directions. And then you're given a choice of three other figures and you have to say which one of these is the same thing rotated and which ones are different objects. And 
women are consistently not as good at that as men. And we know for sure that this is a biological difference for one simple reason, because if you give women a shot of testosterone, they immediately get better at this. So this is distinctly hormone-based. Okay, next question. Your brain uses about as much energy as a refrigerator light, a laptop computer, an idling car, or a car moving down a freeway. Now, I I really thought I got this one right, but unfortunately I didn't. I thought the brain used more than its share of our body's energy. Your brain does use more than its proportional share of your body's energy. It uses about a sixth of your body's total energy, and it's nowhere near a sixth of your body's weight. The key here for the correct answer, which is that your brain uses about as much energy as a refrigerator light, is that your whole body is really efficient. So your brain, over the course of the day, uses about the number of calories in two large bananas. And that is more than its share, but it's only about half of the energy that your refrigerator light uses. There's something about that that's really depressing, Sandra. (laughs) It makes me feel like the body is really an amazing thing, right? That we build all these machines Mm that can't do anything close to the efficiency that your brain and body do. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll rethink my my strategy on that one. Let's move on to the next question. You're in a noisy room attempting to talk to your friend on your cell phone. To have a clearer conversation, you should talk more loudly, cover one ear and listen through the other, cover your ear when you talk, or cover the mouthpiece when you listen. Okay, most of us just talk more loudly. Is that not the best strategy? Usually the problem in a noisy room is not with talking so much as with hearing. So you have trouble picking out your friend's voice on the phone from the noise that's surrounding you in the room. And there's a really clever way that you can take advantage of what your brain is good at to make this work better. So... Your brain is very efficient at separating signals from the two ears. That's how we do sound localization. It's how we tell where the sources of sounds are in the world because they get delayed a bit in getting to the farther ear. And so the brain's got very effective circuits for separating the differences between the signals and the two ears. And what messes you up on a cell phone turns out a feature that engineers put in there deliberately, and I think they didn't think this all the way through, but to make the conversation sound more lifelike, they deliberately take the room noise that's coming through the mouthpiece and they feed it to the earpiece so that you're getting room noise then in both ears. And the tricky thing you can do is if you cover the mouthpiece on the cell phone when you're listening... That keeps the room noise from coming into the same ear that contains your friend's voice. And that problem is really easy for the brain to solve. So you can get room noise in one ear and voice in the other. And even though the room noise isn't any quieter, your brain separates those out very effectively. If you're just joining our discussion, you're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Sandra Amit. We are taking the quiz that begins her book, Welcome to Your Brain. Okay, I'm ready for the next one. Okay. 
Which of the following is the hardest thing your brain does? Doing long division, looking at a photograph, playing chess, or sleeping? Now, for me, I I was trying to get tricky on this one, and I thought looking at a photograph is pretty complex, but sleeping, so many people have sleep disorders, I figured that must be the most difficult. Depends a little bit on how you define most difficult. We were thinking when we wrote this question about the amazement that went through the neuroscience community when people first started trying to make computational models of brain functions. And it turned out that it's really easy to make computers play chess or do advanced math. And what still eludes us, even to this day, is getting a computer to look at a visual scene and sort out what the objects are and what they're doing. So, for instance, there's this, you know, the X Prize where they were trying to motivate people to put a rocket into space from a private company. Mm -hmm. There was some talk about an X Prize for computational neuroscience where the point would be a big challenge to make a computer do something really hard. And it turns out that the really hard thing that they settled on as being sort of a reasonable serious challenge that might possibly someday be achievable was getting a computer that could distinguish cats from dogs. Cats from dogs? That's simple. Your two-year-old can do this, right? Yeah. Computers can't because there are so many different possible images that to a computer look pretty much alike could be either a cat or a dog. Uh, yeah, I guess they're both furry. They have ears. They have yeah, eyes. Yeah, they've got eyes. They've got ears. They've got cute little noses. Wow. So the correct answer is looking at a photograph. That's right. Okay. Now we have a memory question. Yeah, memory is one of these things that everybody cares about. Whenever we give lectures, we always get questions about memory. The question is, memory starts to get worse in which decade of life? 30s? 40s, 50s, or 60s? Well, certainly my experience, I'd say since hitting 40, I've noticed my memory is worse. Is that the right answer? It's actually the 30s, (laughs) but it starts from about the age of 30, and then there's a slow decline pretty much for the rest of your life, although that's on average. I certainly noticed it in my 30s, but different people get hit with it at different times, so it may be that for you, it didn't start till your 40s. And do we know why? Yeah, we understand that pretty well. So there are several parts of the brain that shrink as you get older, and one of the most pronounced is the hippocampus, which is the part of the brain that's involved in storing new memories. Now, this isn't, as you might think offhand, because the neurons are actually dying, but the individual neurons get smaller, and they become less connected to each other, and the structure just doesn't work as well after that. So that's almost certainly the reason that individual people have different rates of memory loss, because they have different rates of shrinkage in their hippocampus as they get older. But we talked earlier that the hippocampus is one area where neurogenesis does seem to continue. Why doesn't that make up for our loss? That's probably part of the reason that that part of the brain has neurogenesis because it needs to make up for those losses 
And as far as we can tell for most people, it doesn't seem to make it up completely. But of course, you don't know how your brain would function if you didn't have those new neurons being born. Well, thank you so much. I've continued to learn much from you and your book. Thanks for being on the show. Oh, it's been fun. We've been talking with Dr. Sandra Amit and doing the quiz from her book, Welcome to Your Brain. I hope you did better than I did. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your questions and your comments, and we'd love to know how you did on the quiz. So visit us at ReachMD.com. Our on-demand and podcast features allow you to access our entire program library straight from your computer. Thank you for listening. 